Welcome to WMRE's Common Area Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning editorial staff at WMRE. Let's jump right into this week's podcast. Hello and welcome to the Common Area with your host, David Bodemer. David, what's going on? I'm uh, doing all right. Just uh, getting ready to, excited to have another conversation with a great guest that I brought in this week. Yeah, before that, for the longtime listener, we, we're 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 doing the Philadelphia Countdown Watch. What's going on there? Or Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh? Oh, I was totally wrong. Well, <laughs> yes. not really. Same Pittsburgh. same state, but yeah. um, you know, just just getting ready for the move uh, in two weeks. So um, I think the the next episode we record should be from the new from the new home office. Oh man, that's exciting! All right, that's great for the audience to hear that. Now on to your guest. Who'd you bring on the show? So um, for this episode, episode, I have with us Mike Acton, who is the head of AEW Research and Strategy. Mike, thank you for coming in uh, and joining the podcast. Oh, great. Thank you, David. Uh, so before we get things going, and, and if you just wanted to give you an opportunity to, uh, you know, for folks who don't know who AEW is, um, if you could just give a brief uh, description of the firm and what your role is with them. Sure. AEW is a global real estate investment manager. We span North America, Europe, Asia-Pac, uh, both in direct private real estate, credit, as well as listed securities uh, in real estate. Uh, I'm the head of the research team in North America, been with AEW since 1990, so a long time, uh, seen a lot of interesting cycles, see a lot of changes in the in the industry over the years. And uh, yeah, that's that's who we are. Cool. So that's what kind of I wanted to get your perspective just from, you know, because of all the different ways that AEW, uh, just the different markets and different strategies and just your role. That's kind of why I wanted to just, you know, have a conversation because we are at this interesting time in a, in the cycle where there are both challenges and opportunities. But I guess, you know, just to first of all, like, what does it mean to be the like the head of research for AEW and how does that play into uh, informing what the funds are doing? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's changed a lot in the time I've been here. Um, back in the early 90s, uh, that, you know, the, a big part of doing research was was really going out into the field, so to speak, and and getting information. There wasn't large third party information sources supporting uh, commercial property investment. So a lot of time was spent talking to brokers, um, touring markets, uh, you know, literally getting uh, getting real data from any source you could. Um, you fast forward to today, and there's there's enormous uh, information resources. Uh, real estate has become an incredibly data intensive, informationally efficient capital sector, very much like uh, like other parts of the capital markets. And a lot of our job today is um, is really interpreting, uh, putting together the mosaic of information from disparate sources, trying to trying to funnel through all this stuff and and separate out what's really actionable from what's um, you know what's just sort of noise. And I think everybody, not just real estate, I think every sector today really struggles with almost too much information rather than the too little information uh, that that existed when I started. So so that's a big part of the role of our group. We are decision support for the firm. You know, my I have internal I have internal clients, I have external clients. And internally, uh, my team works directly with acquisition officers, asset managers, portfolio managers, trying to make decisions uh, every day about investing capital, managing properties, capital structure on those properties, when's it time to sell, portfolio construction, things like that. 
my external clients, of course, are all of our investors. And I spend an awful lot of my time going and speaking uh, with them to, to hopefully to explain to them how we see what's happening in the world, why we're doing what we're doing, and, and really creating a, a partnership. And, and very much, uh, in many cases, really working as extension of their staffs. Most, most of our investors don't have the luxury of having a, a really large real estate investment team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, we offer ourselves as a resource. You know, when I say ourselves, I offer my research team to them as a resource uh, to give them leverage in what they're trying to do internally as well. And those investors, are they, are you working with institutions, high net worth, family office into, or even into the wealth channel? Are you looking at, at all the, do you have all kinds of investors that are, that are working with AEW? Yeah. I mean, we, we, we are looking at all of those uh, primarily, you know, historically anyway, uh, most of our investors, were institutional pension funds, foundations, endowments, mm-hmm. uh, sovereign wealths, um, family offices, high net worth, uh, that, that sort of thing. And, you know, increasingly the entire investment industry is, is moving more and more towards having products and offerings that, that would be applicable to, to a broader set of investors. Uh, we, don't, we don't really have many things that are accessible today to, to smaller investors, though I think that's, that's where a lot of the industry uh, certainly is headed. And you're looking across property when you're assessing opportunities, you're looking across property types, across markets. And also, I think just looking at the strategies listed on the site that there's core, there's opportunistic, you're, you're looking at the debt side as well. So it's, you're basically kind of looking at assessing everything. Yes. AW is very much an investor across the entire risk return spectrum in uh, both, both debt and equity. Um, on the debt side, it's really private debt. On the mm-hmm. equity side, it's both private equity uh, in commercial real estate, as well as the, um, the the listed, the so-called, you know, the REIT sector, so to speak. And so given uh, all, that, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say all the way from, from um, core strategies, uh, all the way up through value-added opportunistic strategies, you know, really, really trying to uh, offer the, the solutions that our, our investors need. And you know, they, they have very different needs. And so just given that vantage point, what are some of the top themes that you're like, you know, looking at or talking about right now? Well, I think the biggest theme in commercial property today is, is the very rapid change that's happened uh, in, in the, in the credit space and in the availability Mm -hmm. of credit for property. Um, There's been a very significant pullback by lenders uh, over the past year. No surprise. It's largely in response to the rapid change in the yield environment that's happened as the as the Fed's engaged on the fight with inflation and the rapid change in interest rates, uh, really very quickly the um, the transaction market uh, in commercial property in the U.S. has become quite constrained mm-hmm. because it really is coming from the financing side, the ability to finance, uh, whether or not that financing is accretive to to assets at current yields and things like that. So far, it's at least where we stand right now. It's not. Uh, it's not as much related to the operating fundamentals of properties. Right. Uh, an exception to that, of course, would be the office sector, and we could certainly talk about that. Very, very different than the, what was uh, playing out in the GFC period, the financial crisis period, uh, where the operating portion of the properties got hit pretty quickly, largely because there was a very significant recession in, underway. That that hasn't happened here uh, in the U.S. Uh, yet, I guess we'll say yet. Could could still possibly be part of the mix as we get through the end of this year and into next year. 
Yeah, I think that's an important point. I mean, I keep seeing keep I keep seeing a lot of sort of um, doom gloom and doom type headlines about commercial real estate in general, and also trying to just you know draw comparisons to the the great financial crisis. But you know, I've I've been around a few real estate cycles myself here on this side of things, and it just feels very different to me, exactly for reasons that that you just talked about. That the fundamentals, again, aside from you know some of the the office, which we know has got a restructuring that it needs to go through, but and a lot of other property types, fundamentals are pretty pretty decent. And so what we're looking at is just evaluation change that's driven by just the, the cost of capital as opposed to something that's like a, a, like a fundamental real estate recession. I guess that could change if we actually do have a real recession at some point that affects demand, but that's just like, doesn't seem to be where we're at at this moment. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you got to put yourself back into that GSC period. You know, the U.S. lost about 9 million jobs pretty quickly, and that created stress right away in, in tenants and then ultimately in property owners and their ability to service their debt and, and all of that. That that hasn't really happened here again yet. Um, it, it may still. But but here it's a very it's a very different situation. The, the problems the banks are having uh, right now isn't caused by problems with the, the quality of the, the real estate loans that they've made and things like that. It's really the problems they're having is how quickly uh, interest rates changed and whether or not they were sufficiently uh, hedged against that change. Um, it's not a it's not a, a credit quality thing. All all of those um, you know all of those uh, government securities that banks bought as reserve they're they're all money good if you can hold them to maturity. The problem is that there was a couple of bank runs and they couldn't hold them to maturity, right? So you have a mismatch between assets and liabilities. That 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 is sort of the definition of what a bank is, by the way. Um, right, right. Borrow, uh, borrow short and lend long, and it's it's when they, the issue gets forced through a, a run. And you know, I think we have to we have to really appreciate how how much technology has changed, how quickly a bank run can happen. Right, um, it happens in minutes now instead of in days uh, as it used to. Um, so, yeah, the, the operating conditions of the properties themselves is, is very, very different. Generally speaking, there's not many problems except, again, in, in office. And office is the uh, – we, we've sort of been referring to it as the uh, the elephant not in the room, if you will, <laughs> because because that's the whole problem, right? If, if uh, you know, if, if offices aren't being used as intensely as they were before, ultimately – in a lot of cases, they'll be valued less by the users, i.e., rent. Right. <laughs> oh, excuse me. And and I think one of the problems that's also been identified is that um, there's been talk of repurposing offices, but it's easier said than done, given the way that the floor plates are set up. You know, if you think about where the plumbing is for an office layout versus where it would need to be for a residential, that creates some challenges. Like that, you know, I think a lot of people think it should just be this quick flip over, but it's really, it's got to. Be specific opportunities where where it could be cost effective to do it. Yeah, I think that's right. And the part people probably don't think about much, if especially if they're not uh, operating in the space, is they don't think about the change in value that has to happen on that mm-hmm. property in order to make the economics of conversion to something else viable. So um, it, it's it's it can be a pretty meaningful number in in some cases, even even if the property could physically be changed. Um, just just the the capital that's going to be needed to make that change uh, is going to be quite significant. Um, so, do you see opportunities in in particular property types right now, or in particular 
kinds of strategies like is debt a good place to be or some value you know just like in terms of looking at your matrix are there yeah, yeah, yeah. is there a certain place you're, that, that you're leaning right now well yeah we're we're certainly um really excited about the opportunities that are presenting themselves in the debt space i mean when you think about it if if some of the largest lenders are naturally constrained and, and pulled back from lending that creates an opportunity for others to to take that that place now you want to do it Obviously, you want to do it in a very thoughtful way, but I, but I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities for that. There's going to be a lot of opportunities for what people broadly refer to as as rescue capital. Mm-hmm. Um, loans maturing today, in many cases, will not be able to be refinanced at the same proceeds needed to retire the existing debt. When that happens, you know somebody has to make up the gap. Somebody has to put in fresh equity. They have to come up with more creative debt solutions that might be uh, debt solutions that involve, um, you know, mezzanine, mezzanine or more mm-hmm. junior loan positions, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of opportunities on the capital structure side. Of course, you want to you always want to be focused on places where it's the capital structure that is either broken or strained, not the underlying property. So right. you're going to have to be very selective. As far as property types themselves go, I mean, the the the, the most obvious one right now that is just on the cusp of uh, of an emerging. Um, I guess we'll call it a cyclical recovery, uh, is the senior housing space. Um, okay. senior, senior housing was was very, very hard uh, during COVID, right? They All kinds of restrictions on people moving in, uh, accelerated, um, you know, people getting sick, uh, people um, passing away, that sort of thing from from COVID. You know, and, and that's a that's a property sector that has really great protocols in place for dealing with all of these things. But they do. They still did suffer, um, you know, reduced occupancy for all those reasons I, I just mentioned. But people still need the people still need the underlying services provided by senior housing. We have a very large baby boom group. They're getting older mm-hmm. every day. Uh, the front edge of that's just getting close to 80. So the demand is coming back. The occupancy numbers are coming back quite strong. The rents are coming back. They're working through a lot of the issues that presented themselves during COVID, much higher operating costs because labor costs went up a lot during during COVID for, for all kinds of industries, but certainly for, for senior housing. So I think the pieces are coming together for the next several years for there to be a really uh, significant recovery in, in the senior housing space. So that that's one that's that's pretty interesting to us. Yeah, that's senior housing. We actually do an annual uh, piece of research with the National Investment Center um, okay. to look at some of the sentiment in that space. And we're, we're about to field that now. So it'll be interesting to see where you know where that sits given to relative i think this will be like our 10th year doing it with them so we've got some good like uh baselines in terms of how things have shifted and things were starting to come back some, some optimism was starting to come back last year and i imagine it'll be like what you're saying for this year just because i think some of those challenges are being worked through but i think it's a you know like you said with the demographic drivers and just the overall quality of operators in that space too it's a it's a mm. it seems like it's got a good um a good investment opportunity. Yeah, I think that's right. So how do you think, uh, what, what are some ways to move forward from here? Yeah, every, every one of these cycles is a little bit different. There's always some catalyst that gets uh, gets the property markets trading again. Back in the financial crisis, as I said, the catalyst was was really operating problems that, that properties had because the tenants were under such stress. The economy was under such stress. Today, um, today that catalyst it can really be one of two things. I mean, one really obvious catalyst is is the loan on the property is maturing. It needs to be refinanced. Over ballpark over the next three years is about $2 trillion of commercial property loans maturing. 
um, lion's share of those are, are bank loans, disproportionately large number of those are office property loans. There's going to be a lot of difficulty refinancing a lot of those. Um, it's going to be very hard to get the same proceeds on the loan. You're going to have a, a lower loan to value on a probably on a lower value, probably with an expectation of even lower values over the next year or two. So that's that's one place where where stress uh, in the capital structure is going to cause properties to have to trade hands. The other point of stress that that can be a catalyst are really significant leasing events. If you know, again, if we stick with office properties for a second, if you have a really large lease and one of your properties coming due, and that either the existing tenant or the new tenant is asking for a lot, they might be asking for free rent, they might be asking for a large tenant improvement allowance uh, so that they can change the space to be more suitable for the post COVID you know, norm of what people want in their office space. Those are really big decisions. That's that's a lot of capital you're going to have to invest. And a lot of a lot of property owners are going to have to really take a hard look at their numbers and really figure out how much equity do I have? What am I really protecting? And what's my re, what's my go forward return on my new equity that I'm putting in uh, into this asset? And so that can be a catalyst where you get property starting to trade hands as well. You asked earlier about the the uh, the opportunity in say debt investing, for example. Mm -hmm. Looking at these refinancing uh, opportunities as they come up is is really interesting. There's going to be a lot of them, and some of them are going to some of them are going to make sense, and a lot of them aren't going to make sense. And um, again, you have to be very careful about picking and choosing and sort of separating wheat and chaff, as they say. And it might be difficult to answer this, but is there? Any thought on on when you think that deal volume might might pick up again? Because we talked about how deal volume has kind of slowed down, and there are these just these uh, people trying to figure out how much things are worth, or trying to just trying to navigate all these challenges. So that's kind of created this this drop in volume. Is there? Do you have a sense of when you think things might begin to open up? Yeah, you know, the deal volume in the U.S. can't really come back to anything approaching normal levels until the lenders are back. And, you know, there are lenders, there are lenders that are active, um, there, there always are, but there's a lot that have pulled back. Um, the banks in particular have pulled back. CMBS is less available than it was. Uh, balance sheet lenders, largely speaking, keep lending, um, you know, right through cycles, maybe, maybe a little more restrained. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, usually like life companies. Um, the agencies keep lending uh, mm -hmm. on on uh, multifamily property. That's part of their mission, so they keep uh, they keep lending as well. Uh, but when you take it in aggregate, it's a it's a pretty significant reduction in transaction volume. Now, transaction volume during the COVID period uh, soared to to record highs on a, on a mid by the middle of 2022 on a trailing four quarter basis. It got up uh, over slightly over a trillion dollars, uh, highest we've ever seen. But understandable, right? The, um, the the Fed took interest rates to zero. Um, they were they were aggressively buying buying bonds to bring down the long end of the curve. Federal government was pumping trillions of dollars into the economy to offset the uh, the negative effects of COVID. So it was sort of a perfect combination of events for for asset values, for transaction activity, for liquidity. That's all that's all reversing right now, right? The government is pulling money back. 
the Fed is raising interest rates. They're, they're attempting to shrink their balance sheet. In other words, drain liquidity from the banking system. So all of those, uh, all of that, those things that combine to be a, a, a perfect uh, event for transactions are, you know, are, are largely now reversed. And I, I don't see most of that changing, certainly the rest of this year, probably mm-hmm. through the rest of next year. You listen to the negotiations that are going on with the debt ceiling. It seems like uh, spending is going to be a little bit more constrained. You listen to the, the the Fed and the FOMC and the various spokespeople. Um, seems like they're going to keep credit conditions tighter for longer, uh, maybe longer than the market thinks. So uh, I don't expect any really significant change, probably through through most of the next year in in the the overall uh, liquidity and, and credit availability environment. So again, we're we're you know since since we have investors that are interested in that, we we think it's a pretty exciting time. And uh, one last question before I let you go, and th- thank you for giving me your time. Another theme that I, that's come up is that you know other conversations I've had is this disconnect uh, between public real estate and uh, listed real estate and private real estate, and whether that creates any investment opportunities. Just given that there's this gap between the the valuations on those two sides. Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon. It happens every single cycle. Every cycle, somebody or another uh, points to it as as perhaps um, it's uh, there's some there's something amiss here. The the listed the listed market, the publicly traded market, you know, repriced much more quickly, much more aggressively. Private market is trailing that. I think that's actually a feature of private markets, not a not a bug or a problem. Um, I, when I talk to CIOs, they they like that aspect of private markets not just in real estate, but across uh, lots of different areas, because it smooths out returns and earnings uh, over an entire cycle. Listed, listed sectors uh, reprice quickly, uh, usually, um, usually go too far. Uh, mm-hmm. The private market follows typically by about a year later uh, and, doesn't, and doesn't have as much volatility. Usually by the time uh, private markets are adjusting downwards, public markets are already moving back up. And they tend, if you look at the data, they tend to meet in the middle and, and move on again into the next cycle. Right. So, I mean, I think it's I think it's the way this stuff is supposed to work. Um, it does create at certain points in time, it can create a, a form of arbitrage, if you will, if you can yeah. if you can find a, an asset in the listed market that's trading at a deeply depressed price, and you can move it in, in into the other market uh, at a higher price. That of course that would work. It's it's more difficult to do in practice than it sounds like in theory, again because it, it requires um, it requires a functioning credit market in some form to make it all work, and that I think that's a, a large part of why it doesn't really happen as often as as you might think it would. But but it's certainly worth looking at, and um, we and others are, are are obviously looking at that. Well, before I let you go, just um, if you want to let people know where they could find some of the, you know, research that you put out that's publicly available or any other information that they might want to get. Yeah, yeah. Like as I said at the beginning, our our research is pretty much entirely for the benefit of our investors. Um, we do make some things available on our website, uh, aew.com. So certainly take a look there. And that's, um, yeah, there's, there's a few interesting things out there for sure. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. And I I hope you have a, a great summer. Thanks. You too.
Great. Michael, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for being a wonderful guest. A lot of great information. David, of course, thank you so much for hosting this. Uh, and our last thank you, of course, goes to you, listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Common Area Podcast with David Bodemer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe down button below. This way, when David comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review, as this actually helps others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at WMRE, this is Eric Johnson inviting you to visit www.wealthmanagement.com forward slash real estate for a wealth of knowledge. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Common Area Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WMRE or Informa. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only.